The scripture that we'll read this morning comes from the book of Mark in chapters 12, verses 28 to 37. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The Lord's crowd listened to him with delight. Um, If you're new with us this morning, again, just want to welcome you. Thanks for coming. Um, We've been working our way, quite slowly it must be said, uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And sometimes uh, you need to do that with the Bible. You need to take a deep dive and and go very carefully because the words are so so impacting, so important. And uh, they're all important, I I understand that. But um, uh, certainly uh, in the Gospel uh, of Mark, we're, we're hearing, you know, from first principles, I suppose, uh, who Jesus is and uh, what did he say, what did he do? And that's really important, isn't it? For anybody who says they're a follower of Jesus, anyone says they're a Christian or attends a church, we've got to know these things. We've got to know them uh, like, uh, you know, um, like the back of our hand, so to speak. And so we come into this section here. Um, if, you, if you want to catch up, you can find uh, the rest of the messages on um, Uh, on the podcast services that you all know and love, whatever they may be. Brilliant. So today we're going to be looking at religion. Religion. Um, If you could boil down uh, the the fundamental rule of life, what would it be? If If you could identify the number one rule to live by, what would you say it is? Even in this room, I'm sure we get a variety of, of answers to that. Um, if you go and ask people out on the street, like, likewise, a variety of answers. Maybe some people would think, well, uh, the number one rule for living is do unto others as you would have them do to you. Maybe that's the sort of, or some variation of that is what you would say. Uh, other people might say, no, the number one rule of living is just live life to the max, 100 miles an hour. Just, just, just go, just do it. Um, you've got one life, just use it. Uh, maybe others will say, well, the number one rule for living is just be you. You be you. You can't be anyone else. Just be you and, and spend your life being you and expressing uh, whatever you is, whatever, whatever um, uniqueness you have. Um, others might say, for example, uh, the number one rule for living is whatever makes you feel good, go and do that. As long as you're not hurting other people, go and, go and do that thing. 
We'll get a variety of options, won't we? And it's all sort of underpinned by what we think is, is, is the good life, the vision of the good life, uh, and what it takes us to get there. That's what we're all shooting for. And we'll all you know, propose different ideas about how we get there. But, but Jesus was asked the same question in, in this text that we're, we're going to look at this morning. He was asked the same thing. Effectively, what is, your, what is your number one rule for living, Jesus? What is your vision of the good life? And yet his answer, as we'll see in a few moments, gets to the, the, the heart, the core of what Jesus means is living a good life, a blessed life, a life in the favor of, of God. So we'll see this morning three um, headings that will just help us to understand the text. Number one, uh, we'll, 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 we'll think about the heart of religion. What's the heart of religion? Number two, uh, we'll think about the problem of religion. And thirdly and finally, we'll think about the gospel of religion. So the heart, the problem and the gospel, uh, the section that Amy's just read for us here, um, it comes in a wider uh, chunk of, of um, probably half of Mark 11 and some of Mark 12. Um, Jesus is, is clashing, disputing with various religious leaders. Um, and uh, we've seen over the last few weeks, he's been clashing with sort of members, I suppose, of the Sanhedrin, the ruling chief priests and elders. He's been clashing with the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, another group. <coughs> He's been clashing with the Sadducees. We saw that last week. And so here um, we have, uh, in verse 28, uh, a scribe. What is a scribe? Uh, a scribe is kind of like a lawyer, I suppose. Um, don't even know any lawyers. You'll know this, the sort. Um, uh, they're experts in religious law. Uh, they spend their lives poring over the manuscripts and the, and, and the, the, um, uh, the bits and pieces, miles and miles and miles of paperwork. Um, about the religious law that underpins the practice of, um, of the Jews. And so his question uh, comes to Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And it, and it seems um, certainly a pretty genuine question. Uh, the other questions uh, that have been brought to Jesus in this section here have all been a trick. You know, they've all been a snare to try and trip him up and, and trap him in his talk. But this question here seems to be a lot more genuine and sincere. And one of the ways we can tell that is um, uh, certainly that the, the scribe came on his own. This is one of the scribes. All the others were groups. You know, that's what happens when bullies come. They come as a group. And they try, they try and sort of push and, and just by the sheer force, they, they gang up. Uh, but this guy comes on his own, one of the scribes, and he asks, what is the most, or which is the most important command of them all? There's over 600 commandments that have been identified by the religious scholars of his day. Which is the most important one? Which is the chief one? Which, which one is the most fundamental that sits above the rest? Which is the, the, the queen, I suppose, of, of the law? And this question um, wasn't just to sort of uh, trip him up, as I say. It was a subject of quite a lot of debate in Jesus' day. Uh, different schools of thought within Judaism would have, would have answered it differently, just like what we've thought about at the start, the number one rule for living. Um, and, and, and so effectively, this scribe, this expert in religious law, was asking Jesus, well, which, which school are you a part of? You know, which tribe uh, are you with? Which teaching do you follow? That's what he was asking. And so we get the... Uh, the answer here in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, well, I'll give you the most important commandment. He says, here it is. Hear, O Israel, verse 29, the Lord, uh, your, your God, Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There it is. That's your number one rule for living, says Jesus. That's what it's all about. Jesus here is quoting from the, the Hebrew Bible. 
uh, the Bible of the, the people of Israel. Uh, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which itself um, is a fairly famous section. If you're, if you're Jewish, even today, um, uh, this, this, uh, this phrase, this uh, formulation, if you like, uh, became a prayer that was repeated or recited twice a day by devout Jews. Uh, it's called the Shema, uh, which means here. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for here. It begins with the word here, O Israel, the Shema. And Jesus said, this is, this is your fundamental rule for life. It guides everything else. This is the bottom line, he says. Love the Lord your God. Love Yahweh. That's his name. Love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. All of you, love God. Love him totally. Total love. That's the number one rule for living. You may have heard of the term total football. I'm glad there's some uh, Dutch people here um, visiting with us. Is that right? Yes, brilliant. Okay. The term total football came to prominence, uh, you know, made, made famous by a, a Dutch footballer called uh, Johan Cruyff. And uh, he, he, he um, played in such a way, but also uh, managed teams in such a way. And total football is the idea that any, any person uh, in the team, with the exception of the goalie, any person in the team uh, can sort of move around the field. And when they move out of position, someone else in the team will come and play in that position. So if you were playing up front, for example, and you found yourself at the back defending, someone else will slip into the upfront role. And, and, and teams like that, particularly in, the, in those days in the 70s, uh, the, the Dutch teams were very, very difficult to beat, and they had great success um, over a lot of years. Total love that Jesus is talking about here is where all parts of you, all members of your body, are fully engaged in loving God. Just like all members of the team in total football are all engaged in, in, in the game, so all parts of you are to be fully engaged in loving God. Every fiber of your being, says Jesus, every breath that you breathe, every thought that passes in and out of your mind, every ounce of strength and energy that you possess should all be requisitioned so that you will love God totally. Love him passionately, love him deeply, love him unremittingly. It's a total love. There, it stated negatively, there is no part of you that is not going to be used to love God passionately. He says, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means he is unique. He is the one. He stands alone. There is none like him. He's the creator, and he's created you, do you know what? To, to, to love him and to be loved by him. And so that, that is the fundamental principle, the rule for living. Total love. I wonder if this is how you have understood religion. Uh, I wonder if this is how you've maybe seen Christianity or understood Christianity. Total love of God. I mean, has this even been your experience of Christianity or has it become something else for you? Rules and regulations, etc. Could you describe your own religion as total love for God, totally consumed by him, totally loving him with all you have? Because according to Jesus, this is the fundamental rule for living. Love God with your all. But then he continues, Jesus, in verse 31. He says, he gives the second. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Um, loving your neighbor as yourself has sometimes been described as the golden rule. Maybe we thought about that at the start. Stated negatively, 
Um, some people put it like this. Don't do anything to other people you wouldn't want done to yourself. You know, live and let live is maybe a modern form of that. Live and let live. If they want to do that, that's fine. Stated positively, as Jesus does here, love your neighbor as yourself with the same interest, with the same attention, with the same focus that you put on yourself. Love your neighbor in that way. Put yourself in their shoes, effectively. How you want to be treated is how you are to treat your neighbor, says Jesus. Allow that to set the pace on how we see other people in our vicinity. And Jesus said that these things, these two, are the greatest. And, and this is the heart of religion. This is the heart of religion. So if you want to understand about the Christian faith and practice and what does it mean, it boils down to these things. Love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice two things, though, in, in what Jesus has said. Um, there, there are... Firstly, there are, there, are, there are two parts, right? Love God and love your neighbor. It's not either or, you get to choose. It's, it's both and. Um, we can't understand one without the other. It's like two sides of the same coin. Um, if we only concentrate or talk about loving God, as wonderful as that is, as people in this world will become detached and sort of pietistic and irrelevant to everything else that's going on, everyone else in our lives. If we only concentrate on loving our neighbors, then the church will just become a charity with a few God words sprinkled over the top of it. And churches do tend in either direction, don't they? Conservative churches in general uh, will focus and emphasize loving God. And, and maybe what we could describe as more liberal churches that would focus and emphasize on the loving of neighbor. But here Jesus so plainly, so clearly says, no, it's both. It's both. That's the first thing we see in, in his, his answer. The second thing I want to pull out just very briefly is that there is an order. There is an order. Love God first. All right, that's primary. Jesus makes no apologies for that. He could have said, well, love your neighbor first and love God second, if you must. No, of course, he says, love God with your all. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. You know, our love for our neighbor is, is to be an outflowing of our love for God. If you want to see how much someone loves God, look at how much they love their neighbor. Or put it in another way, if you are struggling to love your neighbor, according to Jesus, it's because you're struggling to love God. The more we see and know and grasp what God has done for us and how he has loved us, the more that will drive us to love our neighbors. It's an indivisible, two sides of the same coin. Before we move on to the next point, though, let's, let's, let's challenge ourselves a little more deeply here. How do you know that you're loving God? How do you know that you're loving God? How do you know you're loving your neighbor? Do you, I mean, do you ever ask yourself, is this it? Am I doing it? Is this okay? I mean, is my current life and practice that I'm doing, is it, does that count? Is that part of it or what? How do I know? Well, well, think for a moment or two about the people or person or whatever that you most love in your life. Everybody loves somebody else. They do. 
Um, most, most people will answer as a member of family or, or, or multiple family. Uh, friends, just close relationships, children, whatever it happens to be. Think about the person or people you most love in your life. And there are, there are lots of ways that you can sense your love for them. You just know that you love them. But I put it to you this morning that the chief way that you know you love your loved ones is what you're willing to do for them. You know you love someone when you're willing to lay aside your preferences and your comforts and you're willing to spend your resources, be that money or time or energy, for the sake of the one or the ones that you love. That's when you know you really love someone. You put them first, right? You, you put them before you. That's when you know you really love someone. Well, think of it like this. If you only love someone for what they're doing for you, what they do to you, what they say to you, or how they make you feel, then it's not love. It's convenience. Tesco is convenient to me. That's why I shop there. I don't love Tesco. It just works for me. It's handy. But if there was a closer shop or a better shop, I would go to that one. It's convenience. Love is not convenient. Love is inconvenience. Love costs you. Love leads to sacrifice in, 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 a, in a very positive way. Love hurts. And you willingly give yourself to love. That's, that's how you know you love someone. So, coming back to what Jesus was saying here, do you love God like that? Do, do you love him above all else? Do you love him with, with every part of your being, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you have, every resource that you possess? Do you love him with all of that? Do you love him with your whole life? Do you, do you, do you give? Do you serve? Do you worship? Do you enjoy him for who he is? If you can answer yes to that, then you know that you love him. And of course, then, follow that logic forward. The same applies for your neighbor. Putting them first. Laying your life down for them. Sacrificing to them. And we start to get it, don't we? We start to understand what Jesus is getting at here. It's very easy to identify, by the way. If, you're, if any of us are in any doubt, just go home after church and look up your bank account and look up your diary. How are you spending your money? How are you spending your time? That'll tell you what you really love. How does it stack up? That's the heart of religion. Um, maybe that's not what you thought about when you thought of the word religion, but that seems to be the fundamental rule for living according to Jesus. So second thing then, the heart of religion is love for God and love for neighbor. If that's the case, then what's the problem of religion? Um, we'll look down with me at verse 32. Uh, the scribe who's sort of going well at this stage, he affirms Jesus' answer and he says, yes, you're right, teacher. Well said. You've nailed it. You know, this is coming from someone who's spent his entire professional career studying the laws of God. You've nailed it. Love God and love neighbor. That's what it's all about. Every single law can be understood under that rubric. But notice what the scribe then says in verse 33. Love the Lord with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All of that stuff. 
It's much more important to love God. And this is actually very astonishing when you think about it. Consider the context. They're in the temple, in the temple grounds, that sort of thing. And the temple in Jerusalem, uh, as, you, as you may or may not know, was the central space for the offerings and the sacrifices of all the people of Israel. It was the most holy site in all of Judaism. It revolved around this immense number and significance of the sacrificial system, day in, day out. And here we have a scribe, an expert in the law that talks about sacrifice and rules and regulations, and there are tons of them. And here he says, the heart of religion is all about the heart towards God. Not about all this stuff, not about the machinery that's taking place behind me. It's about the heart towards God. That is, that is remarkable. That he has such insight. What is a whole burnt offering, by the way? Do you notice he says a whole burnt offering? Um, a whole burnt offering was the most lavish and costly form of sacrifice that there was. Uh, the most, I suppose, could be considered the highest form of worship because for a whole burnt offering, the entire animal, be that a bull or a goat or some other creature, uh, was offered up and was consumed by the fire. That was the whole thing offered up to God. Other offerings, that was not the case. Other offerings, and probably the majority of other sacrifices, would have been eaten, in part at least, by the priests and all the people who were offering the sacrifice. They got, they got to partake of their own sacrificial meal, so to speak. But with these whole burnt offerings, none of that was the case. The whole thing was offered up to God. And so it was immensely costly, and you didn't get anything back from it. It was kind of like a high point of, of, of sacrificial activity of the people of Israel. But the scribe here saw what most people missed. And he realized that even the most flamboyant, the most notable, the most costly sacrificial act, that was nothing unless you love God fully, totally, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's the problem of religion. It's possible to look at an act of worship, whatever that may be, the external bit, and think that that alone is pleasing to God. We think that that alone is the sum total of what religion is, that that stuff is what what religion is all about. That's the problem with religion. And that, that idea, that mentality was rife in Jesus' day. These laws and these actions and these rituals and these sacrificial processes, even whole burnt offerings, people thought that that was religion. That was what it was all about. But they were fatally mistaken. Jesus shows here that the, the religion is about the heart of God, it's about the heart for God. That's where it begins. And so Jesus clashed, as we've been seeing over the weeks, with so many religious types who focused everything on keeping the rules, on, on the external stuff, on the, on the sacrifices, the minuscule do's and don'ts, and all the rest of it. So many people in Jesus' day missed the wood for the trees, as we say. They were blinded. They thought that was religion. It's the problem of religion. What was rife in Jesus' day is rife in our day as well. So many people think that religion is the the stuff that you do. It's the actions, it's the the do's and don'ts, it's following the laws, it's the good works, it's the religious acts, and they miss the wood for the trees. Here's the thing, just just to be really clear. You can do all that stuff, 
all the actions, all the works, you can attend all the meetings, you can give to as much charity, you can do the most sacrificial and wonderful things that you want. But you can still have a heart that is far away from God. See, this external religion, whatever it may be, it blinds. It convinces you that you've done the right thing, that God is good with you, that you're good with God, and it gives you a false sense of security. If that's what you're relying on, we're all in trouble. It blinds you, it blinds other people, because other people look at that stuff and think that, oh, that person must be right with God. Look at all the stuff they're doing. They must be right with God. So they make assumptions about you that are not true. They, they assume that you're a Christian when, according to Jesus, that may not be true. The chances are, as, as we're talking about this and talking in this, this way, you're thinking of a certain type of Christian. You're thinking of a certain type of church, perhaps, or a certain type of tradition. And maybe, maybe you think that the problem I've just described is really just a problem with traditional churches, whatever they may, may be. Um, with their dead liturgy, you know, their empty prayers that no one believes, their stupid rituals that no one understands. They're the ones who have all the dead religious acts, we think. They're the ones who have all this external religion. They're the ones who are relying on all that stuff for salvation. And that may or may not be the case. But I put it to you this morning um, that any type of church can fall into that trap. Any, any type of church can embrace external religion. Even perhaps at the other end of the scale, the most free-flowing, contemporary, charismatic churches, they're full of rituals as well, and, and set patterns and practices, um, you know, emphasizing, in many cases, the experience over the content, flashy religious moments of ecstatic worship or, or displays of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. These things, too, can become external religious acts. They can become the stuff that we do, which is a cover for our lack of love for God. Or think of a missional church, for example, that prioritizes acts in the service in the community and across the world, acts of good works and goodwill, fundraising, partnering with agencies to solve various social, issue, social issues. Those things, likewise, can become the external religious acts that cover up our lack of love for God. By the way, my point here is not to beat up on these traditions that I've just caricatured. Um, I actually believe there's benefit in all of these traditions for all of us to learn from and absorb and, uh, and uh, be strengthened by. My point is that any religious action or sacrifice or ministry, as we would call it, even the most costly, the most flamboyant, the most noble can take the place of love for God. We can focus on the stuff rather than on God. I'm not saying the stuff is necessarily bad in and of itself. Not at all. Much of that is wonderful stuff. But what I'm cautioning us against is getting the order wrong. Our actions should always flow out of our love for God. Always and only in that direction. If we reverse it, it's catastrophic. Because we start to think we're earning the love of God by our actions. And that is not the case. I 
as you, as you listen to this. Um, think about your actions. Think about your religious works, the good things that you do. And ask yourself, honestly, are they an expression of your love for God? Or are they a replacement of your love for God? Worse still, are your works or your actions a foil? Are they a cover-up for what's really going on inside? You're convincing yourself and convincing others you're right with God when you're simply not. That's the problem of religion. It blinds us. Thirdly then and finally, the gospel of religion, the good news. The scribe in his response and in Jesus' comments seemed to get it. In verse 34, Jesus said, saw that he'd answered wisely and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. We might say close but no cigar. You know, you're knocking on the door, but you're not in yet. You haven't made it yet. And to the scribe and and to many like him, that would have come as a great surprise, if not an offence, to be told that you're not an insider. The scribe, as with every religious person, considers themselves to be an insider already. And here Jesus says, you're close, but you're not in there yet. Religious people may may react like this when confronted with the reality that they're not in the kingdom of God, according to Jesus' words. What do you mean I'm not? What do you mean I'm not far? How dare you? Of course I'm inside. And Jesus then continued to, to preach and teach in verse 35. There he is in the temple still. And Jesus in his teaching is not, dis, not detached from what we're talking about. Jesus reveals why the scribe is near and yet not in the kingdom. Jesus says, how can the scribes, speaking about his class in general, I suppose, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Let's just stop for a minute. Um, It was widely held, a widely held belief in Jesus' time uh, that the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one of God, that that is Christ, Christ and Messiah are the same words, right? Messiah is the Hebrew and Christ is is the Greek, meaning the same thing, the chosen, the anointed one of God. And and this great figure uh, was going to come, it was widely held, from the line of David, King David, great King David, from the lines uh, of the kings of Judah. Salvation was going to come from Judah, and it rested on the kingly line. This is just accepted as standard. Why did did the scribes say he came, was to come from the line of David? But then Jesus goes on to quote from King David. He quotes from Psalm 110 that was uh, written by David, and says this, The Lord said to my Lord, this is David's voice, sit at my place of power. I'm going to give you total victory. Right, so David is, 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 is listening to the Lord that is God. Right, it's more clear in the Hebrew. God speaking to someone that David identifies as my Lord. Right, a term of, of respect of somebody who's greater than me. He's not uh, identified as, as, as Yahweh, as God, the God of Israel, so to speak. But, but he's greater than David. He's the Lord of David. And that Lord, that God is speaking to David's Lord and saying to this 
character over here, sit in my right hand, that place of power, that place of authority. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you glory. All of these things are the markings of the Messiah. But David calls him my Lord. Right? A father never calls a son my Lord. It's the wrong way around. You only call my Lord Sir, you know, uh, something like that. It's a term of, of, of um, respect and honor and dignity. Somebody who's greater than you. See, David is recognizing somebody grander, somebody more superb, somebody worthy of more honor than even great King David. And Jesus here, fast forward a few hundred years, 500 years or so, is saying, Who is David talking about? Who, who, who is David's Lord? The point he's making is that the scribes held that the Christ is, is just the son of David. He's certainly not greater than David. I mean, who can be greater than David? Great, great King David, the man after God's own heart. He was the, the archetypal king of all the people of Israel. No one's greater than him. Okay, the Messiah might be a son of David, but he's not greater than David. But yet Jesus shows from the Bible to Bible scholars something they had missed, which is that David himself, great King David, was pointing to someone greater than himself. Jesus is saying effectively to the scribe and to the scribes in general, your view of the Messiah, of Christ, is, is too small. It's defective. This, you've got this preconceived idea that he's just the son of David. But David himself disagrees. He's more than a son. You're wrong. The, the Messiah, the Christ, is bigger than you imagined. That's why you're, you're near to the kingdom. But you're not in it yet. Close but no cigar. We've seen in our studies over the last few weeks and months, going through... Um, carefully, the, the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus speaks frequently about the kingdom of God. You know, this is a big message. We saw that right at the beginning in chapter 1. Uh, this is, this is the, the, the headline message that Jesus preaches. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe the Gospel. Right? And then he embarks on his mission to show and tell and provide access to the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' ministry summed up. But throughout all of this, we've seen this time and again. Jesus was not pointing beyond himself to someone greater still to come. In all of his teachings and his actions, he was pointing to himself. And he was saying in a hundred different ways, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you do through by me. Through me. You believe in me. Staggering claim for any human being to make. But you can see the problem, can't you? If your view of Jesus is deficient, if for you he's just a wise teacher, or he's just a clever storyteller, or he's just a powerful miracle worker, or if he's just a political revolutionary who died challenging the corruption of power of his day, if that's all you think Jesus is, then you will misunderstand the whole thing. And you'll misrepresent Jesus on his own terms. That's not who he is. Jesus is greater than all of that. Combined, and then some. Not that those things are necessarily untrue of Jesus, they're just incomplete. They're deficient. Let 
An incomplete view of Jesus means that you'll always remain an outsider. Only if you understand and trust Jesus on his own terms, from his own words, can you access the kingdom of God. So it's possible to remain outside the kingdom like the scribe, but look and sound like an insider. Imagine if you wanted to become an American citizen. Um, you, could, you could read up on the history of America. There's lo- loads of material to consume. You can, you can read through their constitution and all their various documents. You can spend all your time watching American TV. Most of us do anyway. Um, you can meet people who are, who are from America, who come over, and, and, and you can ask about their place and ask about their country and, and learn much from their insights. Learn what it's like to be an American, how it feels to be an American. You can follow American sports. I don't know why you would do that, but you can if you want to. All right? uh, American football, basketball, all that stuff. You can even start to talk like an American if you, if you really want to. Pick an accent and off you go. You can dress like an American. You can look like an American. You can sound like an American. You can do all this stuff and yet still be an outsider. You're not actually an American. It's only really when you move yourself and move over there and fill out all their papers and you pledge allegiance to the, to the flag and to the, you know, uh, the Constitution, you become a citizen. Only then... Can you call yourself an American citizen? Only then can you start enjoying the benefits of being an American. It's the same thing here that we're dealing with in Scripture. And based on on all we've seen so far in our study uh, this morning, we can see how easy it is to look the part and sound the part and speak like we know what we're talking about, and yet we can remain an outsider. Entering the kingdom of God is not a case of obtaining a green card or satisfying the U.S. immigration people. Entering the kingdom of God is about pledging your allegiance to Jesus as Christ and Lord. It's about seeing the love of God, that that he put forward his own son for you, Jesus, the son of David, to come and get you access into his kingdom by going to the cross. Do you remember what we were saying about love earlier on? The true love always requires sacrifice. That's when you know you love somebody because you're willing to lay down your life to serve them. When we look at the gospel, we see that Jesus laid down his life for his people. We see what Jesus did and he did it willingly and he did it for you because he loves you. And so when you see what he's done for you and you see the cost of that costly sacrifice, the perfect son of God, the son of David, the Messiah, given for you. When you see that, when you get it, when you absorb it, it will melt your heart and you will turn to God and and receive his love. And you will say, "I, I, I didn't deserve any of this. I've done nothing but offend you, Lord. And look at what you've done for me. It's free, it's, it's, it's costly. I'll never be able to pay you back. But thank you. That's what you'll say when you understand the gospel. 
So when you understand the gospel and you enter the kingdom of God and you trust Christ by faith, then you get to drop all of your external acts. Stop all of your religious games. Discard your empty rituals. And start loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. The scribe was not there yet. Many people today are not there yet. Let me just end with three challenges, how to get there, and then we're done. First challenge, if you haven't already done so in your life, pledge allegiance to Jesus as Lord, as King, as the Chosen One. Repent of your religion and come to Jesus. Bow the knee, raise the hand, whatever it is. Pledge your allegiance to him. You say, you are now my king. I live for you. The second challenge, if you haven't already, the sign-up sheet will be available later. Do the Alpha course. If you're, if you're not there yet, if you're, if, you're, if you're journeying, if you're sort of outside and, you, and yet you want to know more about what life on the inside is like, do the Alpha course. Um, it's a journey to, to learn and discover but I challenge you to, to take time to consider the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Surely it's worth 10 or so weeks, 10 or so evenings of your time. That was the second challenge, do Alpha. Third challenge. This comes from Jesus. He speaks to people, he speaks to a church who used to love him. And yet their heart has grown cold. It's a church in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2. The heart grew cold. They just lost their first love. And Jesus said to me, said to them, and says to you, return to your first love. Right, turn your heart back to me again. You used to love me, and yet your love has grown cold. Return to me. Have your heart remade again. Whatever has injured it, whatever has made it go cold, Whatever's distracted you, whatever your heart has been beating for that's not been Jesus, turn back to me. So whatever that takes, if that's you, clear the clutter out of your life, make space, fight for space, press it back to worship Jesus, to feast in the gospel, to enjoy God. Whatever it takes, he is altogether lovely.